Amen. Yeah, I just want to uh, echo what uh, Pastor Mike said about uh, just really being sad about what's happened in Moira. Uh, it's, it, we really grieved by that whole situation. Uh, there was a lot of effort put into that to try to prevent that from happening. Um, but uh, yeah, it's happened as it is. We're just going to continue to pray for the Lord to be exalted, and uh, Grace Community Church will continue to go on in, in Moira. Um, so anyways, today we're going to be taking a look at something uh, which, I'll be honest with you, I, I wanted to preach a psalm today, and as I was, uh, I, I prepared that yesterday, I prepared a teaching on a psalm, and uh, I just couldn't get there. I, I really, as I was praying, uh, I just didn't have a sense that that's what the Lord actually wanted to do. And uh, last night, the Lord woke me up, as he sometimes does, and I really had this epistle on my heart that I want to take a look at today. And uh, we're going to be taking a look at the epistle to Jude. This is 25 verses of packed power. I mean, this is really um, intense stuff. This is one of the most intense letters in the Bible. <laughs> not going to lie. It's really intense. Um, but we're going to take a look at it today. The issues that Jude deals with are alive and well in the North Country. I'm just going to say that. It's alive and well in the North Country, and it's not just the Unitarians who are dealing with this. <laughs> I mean, they're happy with what I'm about ready to talk about. But obviously, um, you know, this is not a good situation that Jude had to address. And I just really felt impressed that this, in this hour especially, um, this needs to be addressed. I, I taught on this, I thought it was just a couple of years ago. It was actually like five years ago. So uh, periodically we need to look at this. It's a difficult subject matter to tackle, but we need to tackle it. And I really felt impressed to share it today. So we're going to take a look at this. Uh, so let's start in verse 1 of the little epistle to Jude. It's the second to last book of the Bible just before Re Revelation. And if we look in verse 1, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This Jude is actually talked about in the Gospels as Judas, one of the, uh, that's the Aramaic, his Aramaic name, this is his Greek name, uh, but he was a half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And um, he, uh, of course, became a faithful follower of Jesus, became a, was on the leadership team in the church, probably in Jerusalem, um, and uh, really felt impressed that he had to share this. Look at, uh, he says here, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Why this? Because the message he's about to, to share really requires us to double down in all these areas. We really want to grab a hold of the mercy of God and realize the mercy of God is not given out to people who deserve it. It's given to people who don't deserve it. Uh, that's God's mercy, right? We really want to lay hold of that mercy for us and for others. But also uh, peace, peace from the Lord because uh, this is an unsettling issue that Jude has to address here. Uh, but also that love would be multiplied, that all these things would be multiplied because when you deal with the issues that Jude talks about, it's very easy to slip into an unloving attitude, and we don't want to do that. We want to be filled with the love of Christ and the compassion of the Lord as we wrestle through these issues that will and that are surfacing 
in places right here in the North Country, right now as I'm speaking, uh, these issues are being wrestled with. So we take a look, uh, and we continue here, verses 3 through 4. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, or as some versions put it, into sexual immorality or to licentiousness. And they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, several things here. Uh, this is, you know, Jude saying, I really didn't want to talk about this. This is exactly how I feel. I can relate to Jude. I, I really wanted to talk about something else. And yet uh, Jude's like, I, I just felt I had to. I had to address this to contend for the faith uh, once and for all. This is absolutely critical. Uh, and there's one doctrine in particular, one issue that he wants to zero in on. And then he's going to expound on the importance of that and, and how to deal with it. Uh, Jude is going to equip us and how to deal with this false belief, this false teaching that has a way of creeping into the church, and it was creeping in in the first century, and it's creeping in today, and we've got to watch out for it. we really got to watch out for it. We've got to actively defend and promote the apostolic faith. When Jude wrote his letter, almost the entire New Testament had already been written by this time. Uh, and there was no new doctrine, and really only First John through Third John uh, and the book of Revelation, those were the only, and Second Peter, those are the only other books that had not been written, and none of those books deal with any new doctrine. They simply expound on existing doctrine. And so Jude is saying, the doctrine you guys got, the doctrine that you have received, this is the truth, stand on it. It's been once and for all given to us. Don't let anyone uh, take, you, take you away from this. And it's all hands on deck. This is not just for leaders to wrestle with. This is for the body of Christ as a whole to lay a hold of and for all of us to be equipped to deal with this issue and to deal with this issue wherever it arises. And so he really, he really uh, you know, is exhorting us to do that. Now, it, this, it's really a false grace message, what this, this message is that's out there. It goes kind of like this. This is sort of how it sounds in, in the format we hear it today. God loved me and saved me apart from my works and delivered me from God's wrath and from, from punishment and from his wrath. That is totally true. That's like Romans 5, 8, and 9. Like, amen, I rejoice in that fact. I'm totally into that and I'm rejoicing in that. So, so far, so good, right? Secondly, God will love me no matter what I do. That is absolutely true. And I thank God for that. I mean, that, and that's actually, these are two key points in this perverted doctrine. So far, so good, right? But the conclusion from those two things that is, is drawn is really bad. And this is the conclusion. Therefore, because I'm saved apart from works, I'm delivered from the wrath of God, because God loves me no matter what I do, therefore... God really doesn't care how I live my life and I can do whatever I want because the grace of God just covers it. doesn't matter what I do. That is really, really false. That's a false teaching that to think that God doesn't care really that much how we live our life, that we can just kind of do whatever. 
This is really a false teaching. It's a terrible teaching. In fact, what's the, what's the doctrinal problem? What's the real faith issue here? James says they deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. They deny our master. It's interesting, he uses the term master. The term master in the Greek there, it literally is the word we get in English for despot, <laughs> okay, for an absolute dictator. Uh, now, he's a benevolent one, but he is a dictator. I mean, the Lord Jesus sets the terms. We don't get to set the terms for how his grace is to function. He sets the terms on how his grace functions. We don't get to do that. Uh, he is the master. Under this wrong teaching, it's like we become the master to him. Uh, and he, we, uh, we say, thank you for your grace, Lord. I'm going to apply that in any way I feel like to cover whatever sin issue I feel like covering in, in a way that I, I want to. I want to be able to just continue to sin. I want to be able to freely sin without any consequences. <clears throat> and that is a, a really dangerous, dangerous teaching and it was it was seeping into the first century church and it seep it can seep into our church and is seeping into churches just like ours uh, all around the north country and and throughout america and throughout the world it's a big problem now a little caveat here we're not saying that we don't stumble at times right but there's a big difference between stumbling when you're walking trying to follow jesus and you what you stumble, right? What do you do when you stumble and you're walking in a certain direction? You get back up again and you keep walking in that direction, right? And, and the direction is following Jesus. Now, James says we all stumble in many ways. Uh, but that's very different from openly mocking and uh, dismissing clear commands of the Lord Jesus on how to live and saying, ah, that doesn't really apply to me. That's not really that important. That's, that's not stumbling. That's just outright rebellion and rejection of his lordship. And uh, that's the issue. Uh, all the apostles uh, all in the scriptures address this. John, James, Peter, they all warned against this. Paul warned against this. Romans 6, 1 and 2, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? See, the problem is, and I hear this all the time, People confuse holiness with legalism. Holiness is not legalism. Did you know that? I mean, this is really important. Uh, legalism is the idea that I am saved and I stay saved because I follow certain rules or I obey God in certain ways. That means that's how I'm saved. That's how I, I uh, come to faith and that's how I am saved uh, is by my own works. That's legalism. I stay saved by my own works. That's legalism, okay? But that's not what holiness is at all. Listen to what Paul says here. He says, by grace you have been saved. This is uh, Ephesians 2, 8 uh, through 10. By grace you have been saved, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So works don't matter, right? Well, let's listen to this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, this is not like uh, you can kind of sort of want to walk in them if you sort of want to, but no, you really should walk in these things. Our salvation doesn't eliminate the call to holiness. Rather, it empowers us to walk it out. That's the key thing. That's what the grace of God does. First uh, Peter 1.16, Peter writes this, since it is written, you shall be holy for I am 
holy. That's a critical thing. Uh, and, and Paul also says in 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. Let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. So there's this call to repentance. That's part, that's all involved in faith. James puts it this way, uh, 2.14 and 2.18. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. The Jude effectively is saying the same thing as each one of these guys. And so we really see that the grace of God is there to forgive us of our sins and to empower us to overcome uh, issues of sin in our life so that we can walk for Jesus and follow him as our master and our Lord. Uh, and we'll continue here in verse five. Uh, Jude says, now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, in other words, at one time, you guys embraced what I'm about ready to tell you, but now I'm not so sure, right? This is where Jude is, is saying he's getting concerned, right? Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, uh, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And so Jesus is not merely our Savior. He actually also is our judge. Uh, now, thankfully, the judge wants to be our Savior. Like, that's his predisposition. You know what I'm saying? Um, he really wants to save us. Uh, and yet, those who reject him and reject his leadership will fall under his judgment. And this is what Jude is teaching here. Uh, he's especially, again, alarmed because some Christians that he's writing here, some of them seem to be really questioning that whole idea that the Lord is a judge. Seem to really be wrestling with that and, and, and really kind of questioning that whole thing. And that God will actually judge those who reject him and reject his leadership. Now, he will not force people to follow him, but neither are we free of any consequences if we reject his leadership. And that's really Jude's warning here. So what should we do? What should we do? Well, there's several things we should do, and Jude gives us really excellent instruction on what to do uh, and how to deal with this particular uh, problem. First of all, number one, he says, don't pervert the grace of God into license to sin. And that means resist. We need to actively resist those who are rejecting Jesus as, as the rightful master of our lives. I mean, that's really what he's talking about when he says that we should contend for the faith. Secondly, we need to recognize the characteristics of these people so that we can resist their influence in our life and we can resist it and its impact in the lives of others and those around us. In verse 6, he characterizes these false, bre these false brethren. Now, he, he characterizes them in verse 6. He mentions angels who wandered out from under God's leadership. Likewise, these people refused Jesus' right to have leadership in their lives and to tell them how to live. They tend to get involved in or at least tolerate sexual sin. Sometimes they aren't directly involved in it themselves, but they simply tolerate it. They, they don't come against it. They think it's okay. Maybe they even justify it or defend it. That guy's a pretty good guy. He's, he's a wonderful person. He's more of a Christian than somebody else I know, yada, yada, so on and so forth, right? 
I mean, I hear, I hear this talk all the time, this kind of talk. And yet, uh, somehow sexual morality is not important in, in the view of some of these people. Uh, verse 7, he says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah indulged in secu- sexual uh, immorality, they pursued unnatural desire. Um, there's several things to note here. They indulged in the sexual immorality. Uh, this is different than stumbling in it. Uh, sometimes uh, brothers and sisters in Christ can stumble in this area. Again, remember what stumbling is. We want to follow Jesus. We want to go his way, and we stumble. Boom. Oh, no. I saw that thing on the internet. I shouldn't have. Oh, I went to that movie. Why did I do that? That was so stupid. You know, why? Oh, why did I do this? Why did I do that? You know, sometimes Christians can stumble in this area, but their heart is grieved when they do. They don't want to continue in it. And they want to figure out ways to not do it again. That's a sign of repentance. That's a sign of wanting to follow the Lordship of Christ. That's different than what's going on here. These people are people who are doing it and living in it and justifying it. Or they're watching others live in it and they're justifying what the other people are doing and they're tolerating it. They're saying, eh, it's not a big deal. And that is the issue that, that Jude is really, really dealing with here. So we want, we want to see that. We don't want to become overly harsh on people that are wrestling in this area. We're not talking about someone who is, maybe even uh, in the case he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah here, they're wrestling with same-sex attraction, perhaps. That person is welcome in the body of Christ. They really are. Just like the heterosexual who's wrestling with lust issues towards the opposite sex. I mean, those brethren are brethren. I mean, they want to deal with it. They're wrestling with it. They don't want to, do, to go that way, and so they're wrestling with those issues, and they're trying to walk in, in a holy way and, and live a holy life. That we're, not, we're not saying, you know, we're not dismissing folks like that by any means. The grace of God is there for each one of us to help us wrestle with this issue, but it's very different than being brazen about it and justifying it and justifying it when we see it in others, and that's what, what uh, Jude is really dealing with here. This is so serious when you, when you read in the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 2, verse 6, and also 2, 15 and 16. It's interesting, twice there's two churches that had to deal with what uh, John calls the teaching of the Nicolaitans, or actually the Lord Jesus calls it that in the book of Revelation. And most commentators believe it is a form of this perversion of the grace of God that allows for sexual morality. And there were two churches wrestling with this, One church dealt with it, and that church was commended. And Jesus said, you guys hate that teaching. I hate it too. And not not the people, the teaching, right? And then uh, this other church was tolerating it. It was, they were okay with it. It wasn't like a big deal. They weren't resisting it. They were allowing it to go on within their church. And Jesus said, that is so serious I am going to have to come and I'm going to have to deal with your church because of what's going on there. I cannot tolerate that sort of teaching to be allowed and, and to, be, to, be, uh, to be allowed any oxygen, so to speak. Uh, we can't allow that teaching oxygen, uh, particularly uh, for, for those who are in leadership especially, but really all of us. Um, so, so anyways, let's continue on here in verse 8. He says, yet in like manner, again, here's characteristics of them. Um, He says, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, 
reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. This is really, really interesting. So there's four characteristics here of people who are falling under the sway of this sort of uh, teaching and this, this sort of influence. Number one, they rely on their dreams. They're relying on their own subjective experience. What they feel is subjectively okay. It's just kind of this wishy-washy, kind of squishy, it's all okay. It's just whatever I kind of am feeling. I'm feeling like it's fine, so it must be. Uh, they're relying on their own dreams. There's their lack of respect for the Word of God and for the teachings of Jesus and the apostles as the final authority for their lives. That's one characteristic. Secondly, they, they uh, defile the flesh. In other words, they give themselves over to sexual immorality or they give themselves or they're willing to defend it. They're willing to justify it. That's the second characteristic. Uh, thirdly, and, and if, you, if you justify that stuff, even if you're not doing it, but if you try to justify it, that's defiling to you as well. That's defiling your flesh as well. Uh, thirdly, they reject authority. Isn't that interesting? Uh, people who are under the sway of this teaching have a tendency to reject authority. When confronted with the wrongness and sinfulness of their behavior or their belief system, uh, by a higher authority, such as church leadership or the Word of God, they will reject correction. They don't want it. They don't want to deal with it. Fourthly, they blaspheme the glorious ones. This is actually a reference to demonic forces of evil. So they downplay or ignore or minimize the reality of spiritual warfare and demonic influence in, in, in really in the ability to, to deceive them and, uh, and the dangers of it. And they just they don't see it. Or they, in some cases, they even just kind of make fun of the devil and, and, and don't take it seriously. <clears throat> why do they do that? Well, why do they blaspheme the glorious ones? Verse 9 through 10 says, But when the, the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. In other words, they're relying on subjectivity. When a person falls under the, under, into this, under the influence of this teaching, they become very confused. They don't understand a lot of things that ought to be clear. They're, they're, in a, they're in a, uh, under a, a cloud of confusion when they fall under the sway of this sort of teaching. And so this is a, a very, very serious issue. Uh, we are really exhorted in, uh, you know, in 2 John 3, verses 3 and 6 and all of 1 John to walk not only in love, but to walk in truth. We can't just walk in love and not walk in truth. We have to walk in love and in truth. If we try to just walk in truth or just walk in love, we will eventually uh, not do the other. So we, we really need to, to do that. We need to walk in love and in truth. Verse 11, he continues on. And he, he declares these woes. He says, Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. This is really insightful and helpful information to know those stories uh, because it characterizes uh, what's going on here. Uh, there's characteristics of each of these rebels and, and Jude is mentioning these rebellious people from the Old Testament for a reason. And so we need to really lay hold of what's being taught here. Number one, 
each of them, each one of them, each one of these three people he mentions actually had a spiritual side to their life and they believed in God. That's really important. These were spiritual people who believed in God. And so we need to recognize that. Uh, that spiritual people who believe in God can fall under the sway of this teaching. Secondly, none, and this is really important, none of them, whether Cain or Balaam or Korah, were content with the roles and the boundaries that God had placed in their life. They didn't like the roles that God had for them and the boundaries that God had set for them, the way God wanted them to live. They were discontent with that. They were discontent with, with the hand that they were dealt. That's a real key thing. They were not content to just be uh, under the rulership of God and, and to accept the plan of God for their life. Uh, number three, when we look at Cain's life in particular, in Genesis 4, Cain wanted God's blessing and acceptance of his disobedience. And that's what characterizes this people. They want God to bless. They want a gospel that says, God is okay with my disobedience. He is okay with it. In fact, it's just fine. It really isn't disobedience. Uh, it's just all fine and great. It's all wonderful. And so that's what Cain wanted. And Cain got upset when he couldn't get that. He got really mad and he got jealous of the guy who did have a right relationship with God. And he got mad at the guy who had a right relationship with God. He actually went after the guy who really was doing what the Lord said, who really had accepted his roles and accepted the boundaries that the Lord had laid out. Uh, he was upset with that guy. And these people will be too, and they are too. Uh, also, uh, Balaam, when you look at his life, in Numbers 22 through 25, I'm sorry, chapters 22 through 25 and chapter 31, we see the story of Balaam. I encourage you to read it, all these stories. Uh, <clears throat> Now notice, in that story, Balaam was told by God that he could not curse Israel. There was a problem, though. He had been told that he should curse Israel. He'd been hired to curse Israel. So he's trying to figure out a way to not disobey God, uh, but he really, he's finding this thing really attractive because the king is offering lots of money, and he wants to be honored by the king, and he wants the guy's money. And yet, at the same time, he's wrestling with this whole thing, and he's going, oh, you know, if I can just split the hairs on this. And the amazing thing is, is that while he's trying to split the hairs on this thing, he's not really submitting to God, and yet, God is using him. This is astounding, really. I mean, God gives Balaam incredible prophetic words. These are incredible prophetic words. There are worship songs that have been sung using some of these prophetic words. I mean, these are astonishing prophetic words about the Messiah. I mean, really incredible prophetic words that he had and blessings for the nation of Israel. And it was all good. And, and so we need to understand that uh, there can be people whom God even uses sometimes in a positive way, but who actually are in error, and in serious error. And yet they can actually maybe at times say things and do things that are really helpful and that actually are a word from the Lord. I mean, how astonishing is that? And yet it's true. We need to understand that. It's very important because it's very easy to become deceived because we look at some guy and go, wow, looks anointed to me. What's the problem? Oh, but if he's accepting this mindset, this frame and way of, of doing things is a huge, huge problem. 
Also, Korah's rebellion, Numbers 16. I encourage you to read that story. Uh, Jude refers to that also. This involves someone who was in a mid-level position of authority seeking greater authority over the people of God. Uh, And he was grumbling, and the guys with him were grumbling against the leadership and claiming that because all God's people had equal standing with God, it was thus illegitimate for anyone to be in a position of authority over them. That's exactly what was going on. They were really wrestling with this authority issue. They, they, made, they believed and bought into the error that equal standing means, because I got equal standing with God, it means I also have equal authority of anyone else among the people of God. Equal standing with God does not mean equal authority. It really doesn't. Uh, and it's, it's, it's really uh, uh, amazing when you, when you read that and look into that situation. And, uh, and yet we see this is exactly what was going on in Korah's Rebellion. And uh, we're going to come back to that in, in, uh, in just a second here. But let's continue to read on here in verse 12. Because that, that is a really, really powerful one as well. Verse 12, it says, These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. Wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So I want you to notice here, Jude says they're hidden reefs. They're hidden reefs. It's not always immediately obvious who they are. That's what makes it doubly difficult to deal with this issue. Uh, But they're marked by using their influence in a way that tends to be self-centered and tends to lack a general fear of of God's judgment, has no box for God's judgment. This is a problem uh, that that tends to uh, be exhibited in their their life. Now, and Jude is is really serious about this. He, He says people that stay in that sort of uh, mindset, gloom of utter darkness has been reserved to them forever. It's very, very dangerous. Uh, <clears throat> verse 14 and 15, Jude refers to Enoch's prophecies, uh, and he says they'll be judged not only because of their ungodliness, but, but listen to what he says here, but because of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, now the interesting thing here is they don't always say things directly against the Lord. They sometimes do it indirectly, but it really is against the Lord. And, and we see that in the example of Korah's story. Okay, Korah was serving the Lord. He was. I mean, read, read it. Read the story. Uh, the implication of Korah, you know, he, he's, he, re, he rebukes, Korah rebukes Moses and accuses him of setting himself up in leadership and setting himself apart from God's people in a special relationship to the Lord. So Korah is essentially jealous of the role that Moses has. He doesn't like the role that Moses has. He covets it. He wants it. 
He wants to have that level of authority that hasn't been given to him. He has a level of authority, but not the level of authority that God has given to him. And Korah, uh, the implication of what Korah is saying, he's essentially saying that by, uh, that by leading God's people and being God's prophet and priest, Moses and Aaron are actually behaving wickedly. That's the charge. That, that Moses and Aaron are actually behaving wickedly because they are in this position of authority that, that they are in. That's wicked. That's bad. They shouldn't be exercising authority like that. That's what Korah and the people with him are, are saying. And they're not happy uh, but, you know, with the way things are. Now, Moses rightly identifies such rantings and ravings and grumblings against him and Aaron as actually not being against him and Aaron, but against the Lord. It's, it's Numbers 16.11. Moses is saying, listen, you guys are not rebelling against Aaron and I, you're rebelling against the Lord. Now, why is that? It's because the Lord placed Moses and Aaron in that position of authority. Moses didn't want it. Remember the story of Moses? Moses was like, can you find somebody else? Like, I'm not interested in this. I don't even want this position. And yet God said, no, this is what I really want you to do. And now, all right, I'll bring Aaron along and I'll have him help you out as well. And so God placed Moses and Aaron in the position of authority that they had. And so when Korah rebelled against these people whom God had placed in authority in his life, he was actually rebelling against God. When he ranted and raved against them, he was actually ranting and raving against the Lord himself. That's the danger of this. And when you look, continue on in verse 16, he says, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. So that's interesting. A lot of times uh, these, these people may start out not in a position of leadership, but are trying to, to, to maneuver and get into more influence, get more influence. And, and they'll use favoritism, whatever they need, in order to gain advantage for, that, for, for, for themselves, for their, for their own goals. So it's, it's a very dangerous situation. Now he goes on here, verse 17 through 19. He says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions. Worldly people, devoid of the Spirit. So, so he's, he's warning against this. It's a very, very dangerous situation. Um, they actually are causing division uh, by their worldly behavior. So how do we actually avoid getting sucked into this sort of a belief system and mentality, this false grace belief, this false grace message? How do we avoid getting influenced by that and sucked into that thinking? Well, he's going to give us some tools here. Uh, we read verses uh, 20 to 21. He says this. He says, But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So number one, you need to, to build yourself up in, in, in your faith by being a prayer. Be someone who is praying and praying regularly and praying in the Holy Spirit. Now, some commentators have thought, well, maybe that means like speaking in tongues or whatever. It certainly could mean that. That could be one part of it. It doesn't have to be the whole picture, though. Praying in the Holy Spirit really is essentially 
praying in the, in the desire to, to hear and to follow the will of God and to pray in the will of God for your life and for the lives of others. That's really what praying in the Holy Spirit is. It's really praying in a way that follows the agenda of God in your prayers. And so this is praying in the Holy Spirit. Secondly, uh, keeping yourself in the love of God. This is really, really important. It's staying focused on loving God as the first and primary thing in your life. The, the first commandment really has to stay in first place. Remember what Jesus said. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. He said, That is the number one commandment. The second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But you've got to do the first one first. That absolutely has to have preeminence in our hearts and in our lives. The love of God above and beyond love for anything else. Love for position, love for authority, love for attention, love for honor. You name it. It's got to be the love of God has got to come first. And thirdly, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that really, that, that ultimately is going to lead to eternal life. So we're waiting for his mercy. Uh, it's, it's this realization again of the mercy of God that we have received, that we, we don't deserve what we have here. <laughs> we don't deserve what we're inheriting. And th- this leads to a, to a realization of how grateful we ought to be for the Lord Jesus and the reality that he is coming again. He really is going to come again. So this eternal life, this really is eternal. So how do we actively uh, keep others from falling into this? Well, verses 22 through 23, we're getting there. And have mercy on those who doubt, save others by, uh, by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. So have mercy on those who doubt. Uh, there are people, many times doubt, you have to be careful with doubt. It's okay, doubt is part of being a human being at times. We all have had to deal with it at times. But we need to be careful when that comes, and we need to help people when they're wrestling in seasons of doubt. This can be a very tender time in someone's life when the enemy can come in and take advantage of doubts that people are struggling with. It could be doubts about the nature of God. Is God really a judge? Is God loving and a judge at the same time? Uh, the answer, short answer is yes. But, but some people really struggle with that. They have doubts about that doctrine. They struggle with that doctrine. It could be, uh, you know, J- Judah's saying here, don't get mad at such people. Have mercy on them. Help them. Don't get mad at them. Help them. That's basically what he's saying there. Uh, some people have doubts because they're, wrestle, they're wrestling with sin issues. They just think they're never going to get free. And so they, they really have doubts because of, of sin issues they're wrestling with. It's not that they want to do those sins. It's just they're really struggling and they really need some help. We need to have mercy on them and they're having doubts because of that. Uh, maybe they're doubting that they could never get free and live a holy life. And so a false teaching like this can become really attractive to them. And so we need to, to help people like that and have mercy on that. Uh, perhaps they're doubting the accuracy of God's word that you can really lean on it, you can really rely on it, that it really is God's will for our life. Or the uniqueness of our faith. I mean, there's a number of things. Maybe they've been hurt by Christians and they begin to doubt God's people love them, right? I mean, there's a lot of things. Don't get mad at people who are wrestling with these issues, but have mercy on them and help them. That's really the Jude's message. Secondly, save others by snatching them out of the fire. Uh, some people, through their associations, are just simply getting too close to the fire. And they're being influenced in a way that is, is going to be destructive to them. 
And so sometimes we need to just help snatch them out of the fire. But literally, we go after folks like that and we try to help them. And again, we show mercy on them. Remember how Jude started his, his, his whole message? Mercy, peace, and love, right? We need tons of that stuff, right? And, and also to others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained with the flesh. Uh, with fear, why? Because... You easily, we have to realize our own weaknesses and we can easily fall into deception ourselves. This is a very powerful deception. We need to watch out for it. We need to be careful about it. We need to not give in for a minute into the notion that there's any justification for that lifestyle or tolerating that teaching. We've got to be very careful about that as we go to try to help people out of it because some of them are going to try to convince us of of their view. And so we need to really be careful as we go into this, we need to be really, really careful. So we're going to end it right now. And uh, Pastor Mike's going to come up and tie a bow on this. He says in verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forevermore. Aren't you glad that he is able to bring us through to the end? Thank God, even in the midst of the trials and the difficulties, the Lord Jesus ultimately will have the victory and he he will have the victory in our lives. And so, Father, we just thank you that you are going to have the victory in our life. Lord, we just freshly submit ourselves to you as our master and our Lord. Lord, we don't want to be our own master, our Lord. We want to follow you as our master and our Lord. And Father, we pray that you would protect us from false teaching, from false belief systems, from the influence of these things and the influence of of those who hold to these teachings. Lord, help us to snatch people out of the fire, people who are being influenced by this stuff, Father. We just pray for your help and your grace to be able to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Pastor Mike.